Welcome to Who Knew. We are fans of the current series of Doctor Who, and here we discuss our likes, dislikes, and insights into the modern regeneration of the show. Subscribe, review, and listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher, or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash whonewpodcast. All our episodes are on whonewpodcast.com. You can leave comments there, or email us at whonewpodcast at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram and Twitter account. Tweet at us at whonewpodcast. And find us on Facebook. Today we're taking a quick trip in the TARDIS with Classic Who. Today it's Who Classic. We've reached the point in the show where Doctor Who turned 50 in the year 2013. This begins our coverage of the 50th anniversary leading up to the Day of the Doctor. What better place to start than with the episode where it all began, An Unearthly Child, the first episode of the first season of Doctor Who ever. It's written by Anthony Coburn, directed by Waris Hussein. It originally aired on the 23rd of November, 1963, and it was watched by 4.4 million viewers. Hi, this is Eugene. Let's introduce ourselves. Hi, this is Josh. Hello, this is Auburn. Hi, um, this is Kelsey. Hi, this is Brian. Hi, it's Heather. Hello, this is Frank. It begins with the London police officer wandering past a scrapyard on a foggy night. Inside among various pieces of junk is a police call box. Later at Cole Hill School, teachers Barbara and Ian discuss a problem student named Susan. They comment on how smart she is, but also how odd she can be. Barbara believes that her family ignores her. She tells Ian that she went so far as to look for Susan's grandfather at the address the school had on file. It turned out to just be a junkyard. That night, Ian and Barbara drive to the junkyard and wait to see if Susan shows up. To pass the time, they discuss the strange things that Susan says and does, and they admit that curiosity is the main interest for the girl. Susan arrives and enters the junkyard. Ian and Barbara follow, but Susan is nowhere to be found. They find the police call box and wonder what it is doing there. Suddenly, an old man enters and starts to unlock the police box door. From somewhere inside, Susan yells, There you are, Grandfather, causing Barbara and Ian to reveal themselves. The old man demands to know what they are doing here and accuses them of spying. When Barbara mentions hearing Susan inside the box, the old man claims he heard nothing. Fearing for Susan's safety, they start to leave in search of a policeman. At that moment, the police box door opens and from inside, they hear Susan's voice saying, What are you doing out there? Barbara and Ian run into the box and find themselves in a large, bright room filled with electronic devices. Susan approaches and the old man, her grandfather, tells her to shut the doors. Ian wants an explanation as to where they are and Barbara thinks that they should leave. The grandfather doesn't answer any questions and is angry that they disrupted everything. He tells Susan that going to the school is a bad idea. Then he tells her that he was able to get a replacement part and begins working on the large console in the center of the room. He says to Susan that they know about the ship and they will tell others. Susan explains that the police box is the TARDIS, capable of traveling through time and space. Thinking that Susan and her grandfather are not well, Ian and Barbara try to leave, but the old man won't open the doors. Ian flips a switch on the console and gets an electric shock. After Susan pleads for him to let them go, her grandfather agrees. But instead of opening the doors, he activates the TARDIS with shakes and wheezes. The TARDIS lands on a desolate landscape and a shadowy figure approaches. So we this is the first TARDIS team which we have covered before with uh, the Doctor, 
and Susan, the granddaughter. And then these are her two teachers from uh, high school, Barbara and Ian. A little bit about this. This is the first episode. It aired the day after JFK was assassinated. So it took away ratings because of the, the news coverage. So when they repeated this, I think the next week with the next episode of the, um, the caveman stuff, they paired this episode with it so that people could understand what was going on. Oh, that's cool. I, I always thought from the other episodes that we did that Susan was a bit much. And I, <laughs> even though I, I, I find her origin or the origin of, that we are told in the story to a certain extent much more interesting, I still stand by my assessment. <laughs> well, I, and and the the doctor's an interesting character. He's quite the jerk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sitting here like it, it's. I'm I'm finding it just interesting in a uh, television history way of like, oh, this like this show you know took off to a certain extent. I don't know the exact popularity of of it at this point in its earlier you know first season, but obviously created a phenomenon. And it's just very interesting to see like, okay, this doctor stuck like like this vibe, you know, hit a nerve and be and became a thing. So I was watching it in a very documentary type way, uh, keeping all that in mind, like. Why, you know, looking at the way that the acting was of the time and the television production, and it kind of seems like it matches television production back then more, you know, and and regular television production, like skyrocketed in this sort of Mm -hmm. state, but just its place and like, what are the things that kind of hit? So I I was very aware of, well, that's interesting. Oh, I could see how that was very, you know, um, uh, intriguing back then and stuff. I will say it's, it's really, it's got a real you know classic horror vibe you know he seems like a villain the doctor oh yeah and you know and uh the way that uh, um the teachers are ian and what's barbara barbara are are are, are acting is so <laughs> over the top afraid of different like they're creating their own anxiety in a lot of ways and the way the dialogue was and stuff so it was very interesting to watch as much as it was just enjoyable that it was a doctor episode did you also notice it was never named the doctor they said, "Oh, I think is I think the grandfather is a doctor when they're in the school, but he's never named. He never says his name is the doctor. Nobody ever calls him the doctor because she says grandfather." Mm-hmm. You see, she got her name from the "I am Foreman" sign on the junkyard. That's where she got her last name. Oh, yeah. okay, right, 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 right. I I always like character names as a way that the you know the writers can tell us something about the characters, and just seeing that "I am for E Man." Like mm-hmm. at the beginning, like you could take that as either I am for people in general, like I'm for man, or you could even take it like I am for English man because mm. of the <laughs> or every man. But uh, no, I, I like that her last name was for man. And I mean, on the sign, like like you said, at the very beginning, the I am for man is just it's like prominent. Yeah, very prominent. Yeah. Latent. And I got I got a kick out of what you were saying on our last episode where with Colin, uh, Colin Baker. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, how that episode started with the same setup, same scene. Yep. And that I had forgotten so much about this episode. I've been a while since I watched it. Usually I watch it all as a series. I did not find the doctor as, I don't know what Brian said, curmudgeony or. That's a good word. <laughs> you know, as he is later on in his run. I don't like see this him as villainous. I just see him as. No, he just dismisses a lot of the people. And that's the same thing that happens with a lot of the current Doctor. If you're not the companion or someone that you're supposed to like, he'll just dismiss you. I mean, he does that with even Rory. He did that with... um, Mickey. 
Thank you, Mickey. <laughs> just a lot of people until something happens where he switches his tone. A lot of times he just dismisses them, and that's what he's doing with these people. And I liked it. Sure, go, you know, get a policeman, and then we'll go see what you're like talking about this great, this, you know, just salvage yard. My favorite, my you favorite know, was when uh, they said something totally random, and he's like, "Oh, go away." Right. <laughs> so, yes, he was aggressive, you know, kind of at the beginning, or abrasive. I think might be the better word, but. It's understandable knowing what we know now, and it didn't seem as bad as I remember him being. Well, I also think that, like, that no one has seen this before, so they, him being that way creates mystery and conflict. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Verdi Lambert was on the DVD commentary, and she mentioned that the the conceit or the the idea behind this original episode was the mystery of who the Doctor is, because the show is entitled Doctor Who, so it's a question. So that's why they don't ever address him by name. It's always sort of by a title, like grandfather. It's not like um, Galfrayan, you know, like a Galfrayan name. So you, you, you wanted they wanted you as the audience to know what is this guy's job, where does he come from, who are the rest of his. They they kept wanting to you you to ask questions of who is this guy. They succeeded. Did yeah. <clears throat> um, was his on the back end of things? Was he the doctor? What do you like, mean? Did we already know? Was that established in, in creating the show that he was going to be called the Doctor, or is it something they um, just kind of came up with? It's it's a little bit of both because he was always he was the title character Doctor Who. It was never I don't think it was the Doctor until later because right. then they came up with the regeneration. Was he oh. always credited as Doctor Who in his whole run, or just? No, I think they stopped around. You know, I don't know. I think Patrick Troughton still had Doctor Who. I'd have to look well, in, in the second, ep I know we're only talking about the first episode, but this, in the second episode, they pose the, you know, he, hey, he said the title, or Ian said, you know, mm -hmm. when they see, realize that the name isn't Foreman or whatever, it's like, well, then Doctor, Doctor Who, who is he? <laughs> right. So it was early on in that second episode. So it's obvious that when they wrote this whole arc, that was uh, in their mind. I looked up uh, the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, and he is credited as the Doctor. Mm. So I think they changed it around the, the fifth doctor's run. But did the uh, doctor ever say before that, like, my name is the doctor? I think he started to. Okay. Oh, yeah, he did. In classic, oh, yeah. Yeah. Tom Baker said oh, yeah. it all the time. I'm the doctor. Okay, okay. Hello, I'm the doctor. I thought it was interesting they were there for five months, staying in one place. I guess to try to fix the TARDIS, because the doctor came back saying he found something that'll work, even though mm -hmm. it's you know, not great. And he didn't want to stay in one place for that long. Oh, I didn't catch that. And it seemed more, it... you know, he even said that, um, ah, where is it? Oh, they were exiles. You know, yes. they were cut off from their home planet. Yeah. So it seemed the way they were talking, right. there was more of a longing to be back there, but they were banished, mm. which changed that he stole it and willingly left. I mean, it's mm. not a big difference because you can't say the reason he left was because yeah, yeah, things were happening and it wasn't working. So it would have been one way or the other, but it just was an interesting way of doing it where it seemed like they couldn't or go back. So they only had this to do. And Susan loved this period of time and wanted to spend it here. And I can't believe she is supposed to be 15. Yeah, there's no way. <laughs> if, if, if you look, if you look at the other students during some of those flashbacks when they're when she's getting embarrassed in class, none of those kids are under 25 years old. But um, what I've noticed is that people used to age much faster. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So while they all they maybe while they were all definitely not 15 year olds, they could have been 18 or 19 year olds. Yeah. Uh, true. True. 
And one thing, one thing that will blow your mind is this doctor is younger than Peter Capaldi. Yep. Oh, that does. <laughs> William Hartnell was 55 when he shot this pilot. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> breathe, Frank. Oh my God. Breathe, Frank. Wow. Breathe, Frank. Frank, breathe. <laughs> and, uh, when, uh, when Susan was talking to um, Ian and Barbara, and Barbara gave her the book, and she was listening to music, and it's by John Smith and the Common Men. <laughs> so um, then he was saying, "Oh, that's just his stage name and all this." So it's like is that the first reference to John Smith, and I don't know if they planned on that or just no, they didn't. They didn't. But plan it just that. was perfect. That was the name of it. No, no, it's canon now. And that's what he took, <laughs> yeah, and that's what he took as his pseudonym. Yeah. Is that, that, is that real? a real band or is that made up? You tell us. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> so. Yeah, John Smith and the Common Men were a fictional group that appeared on an episode of Doctor Who. So mm-hmm. they did make that up as, you know, for every Why man, isn't there a band called man, that now? Men. Come on. I know, really, there should be. And you just keep changing the lead singer out every couple of years. Like I've had it with this <laughs> <laughs> where, where are you finding that, Frank? Because I'm seeing that it's real. Yeah, oh, that's so, not a real thing. I'm talking disc jock, discogs. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. And they're saying that the prof- uh, fictional group appeared in some early episodes of Doctor Who believed to have been performed by the Arthur Nelson group. Okay, so that's I'm looking up that stuff and not uh, like the monkeys. <laughs> like they're not real, but they are. Uh, right, and this, they said that the Beatles took over their spot as number one the week before or something, but that's all in TARDIS Wiki, which I thought was fake, so I kept trying to find yeah. other people. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Okay. Oh my gosh. Are they real? There's, I'm trying to figure out when this one was, because there's an album on Amazon, John Smith and the Common Men Sounds from the Inferno. It's a single. Hmm. So maybe they made it afterwards from vinyl. I also found them on fakebands.com. I thought they were fake, but maybe this one person did it just as one copy of it. Yeah. Anyway, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) See, I think it's fake, and they just kept, you know, becoming such a Like a running game. At the time, (laughs) what they would do with that, but... I have a question about the the Rorschach test that um, yeah. uh, Susan did uh, in the classroom. What was that all about? <laughs> I have no idea. Right, she like, does it no. so awkwardly. It was kind of cool though. <laughs> yeah, but then she draws like the the, the hexagon, the hexagon around it. I was almost as, expecting as if that it revealed something. Right, I was almost expecting it to come out in a later episode in this serial, serial but it yeah. but it doesn't come yeah. back at all. No. It was but just her just, genius. It was, then, then, it was just one of the examples of how she's saying odd uh, things. Uh, yeah. yeah. My favorite one is when she's like, but we're on the decimal system. And they're like, yeah. no, we're not. And this was if in she, 63. And then it, they didn't go over to a decimal system until 1971. But they were already, in, the, the government was already in the pro- progress of changing the currency. So everybody knew about it, but it hadn't happened yet. And which episode was it where she she said she named the TARDIS? Was it this one or this episode two? No, this one. Back to uh, the the doctor wanting to fix the TARDIS. I like to think that he's trying to fix the chameleon circuit because it's stuck in the police box and they want to leave 1960 and go somewhere else. So they want it to blend in with that surroundings. That's just my take on what is going on here. Oh, that's cool. But Susan, but Susan doesn't sound. Blah, blah, blah. Susan sounds surprised when they land somewhere and it doesn't change. So yeah. that's in the second yeah. episode, but I agree. Yeah, with it is. Yeah. But I, yeah. but it but it discredits the first episode. <laughs> it yeah. discredits your theory, but yes. But I don't now. I don't. I watched it all together, so now I don't remember what I was supposed to watch, oh. where that ends, and where everything else. <laughs> 
Just the parts with Susan, Barbara, and Ian that were, and no cavemen. That's what we're discussing. <laughs> Once the TARDIS took off, it landed, and that's it. That's where. Yeah. Those you know, are nothing where they landed, other than <laughs> it looks snowy. No cow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can't just erase that from my brain, but I will try. It's okay. Okay, so there's two versions. There's like multiple versions of the first episode, the pilot, because back then there was no pilot. Like Britain Television didn't create pilots; they just aired the first episode, and um, they shot something that's on the DVD. Is like more of a I want to say run through because they don't tr they leave in all the the awkward transitions where you see that they have to reset to go to another setup and so on the one that you guys watched it's more refined where the transitions from scene to scene are edited better so they have that on the dvd and it's kind of kind of um it's kind of cool to see how what it's like before action if you will they're like get ready okay go and um they also change the second half where uh barbara and ian are inside the tardis console room um Caroline Ford's or Susan's wardrobe is different. It has the the black and white striped sweatshirt or sweater, where the other one has that more shiny, shimmery, space agey looking collar, long uh, shirt. And they toned down the the doctor's cantankerousness. He was worse in in the yeah in the first one, wow. and then when they do it later, where where Susan has the striped sweater, it's a little lessened. <laughs> And also the part where Ian touches the console and gets shocked, that I feel is done better on the second version. But the doctor made him shocked? Wasn't it like Ian did something wrong? The doctor electrified the console? Yeah, because in the other one, it's like the doctor pushes that button as a security measure or something. That's how I take it. And then Ian gets shocked, where the other one, it feels more like maybe accidental because his genetic imprint isn't, or the TARDIS isn't used to him. Oh, I took it as the doctor was like, yeah, go ahead, do it. Click. You're going to not do that again if you after this. It was definitely premeditated how I saw it. Uh, and also Caroline Ford's hairstyle for Susan was created by Vidal Sassoon. Ooh. It's very much of the time. It was very uh -huh. chic. And it also reminded me of Yvonne Craig, who is Batgirl. Yeah. Was, you know, they both move very similar because they're both dancers, I think. And you could just see that the hairstyle was the same, that similar look. So for production, Eugene, yes. in like the takes that they would do, would it just be, we're going to go through this and it's done and moving on? Or do you, would they stop down and do like a second take if it was really bad? From what I saw from the, the pilot that's on the DVD, they just kept that camera going. There was no real takes. But I think that on the, the DVD commentary with uh, Waris Hussein, who directed this episode, he mentioned that there was rehearsals and things. So maybe they did all of that before they turned on the cameras. Yeah, it's probably like theater. <laughs> y yes, exactly. And, you can even and see in this one, all the actors stumble over their lines at times. And that would never... <laughs> they keep going. <laughs> yeah, they just kept going. But that makes it really work well for me. I'm glad oh, yeah. they did that. Yeah, I'm glad they're in there. Yeah, the other thing that they said is that these cameras were as big as the TARDIS prop. So that's right. why those cameras are moving and they're like, they can't focus right away. And it feels like really claustrophobic when they're in that junkyard. I feel as if Barbara and Ian are tripping over props, but as well as like camera cables. <laughs> I feel like at one point the camera itself runs into a prop. Yes. <laughs> and you see, you see the camera <laughs> tilt down and then come back up. 
Yeah, because in that same spot where Barbara and Ian are kind of hiding from the doctor, it's very theatrical stage play-y where they're hiding, but it's like clear the doctor can is can see them from his line of sight. And then when they change spots because of the dialogue dynamic, the doctor becomes more of a controller of the conversation. He goes upstage, literally upstaging them, and they're in the background out of focus. So it's, it's weird. It's like they tried to do something as a live stage play, but document it with a camera. Yeah, a lot of the blocking was very, very stage play-like. And dialogue, yeah. too, the way the story was told. So we've been talking about how the doctor is to various stages grumpy. And, you know, like he's very dismissive of Ian and Barbara. But I noticed watching it again for the podcast and like analyzing it. That's kind of how Barbara and Ian treat Susan. Mm -hmm. They're very dismissive to Susan. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember when you're a kid, the days you weren't supposed to have opinions and thoughts and feelings. And yeah. Be human. But they're more, they're more they're gentle about it. Yeah, yeah, they're gentle about it. The doctor's just like, I'm just waiting for her to lock her underneath the stairs like Harry Potter or something. <laughs> yes. I, yes, I'll give you that. But there's that one point when Barbara's saying she's standing in the middle of the console room of the TARDIS. She's gone through all of this. And she says to Susan, basically a child, but can't you see this is all an illusion? Well, you're in the middle. Of, what illusion? What's going on? Did you take mushrooms, yeah. Barbara? I mean, it's so yeah. completely dismissive. Like, I'm an adult. If I say that all of reality around me is not reality, you're a child, you will believe me. Remember those days, Frank? Susan just be like, okay, bitch, water. <laughs> You're taking it from one angle, and I agree with that. But I've also seen Barbara's point of view of, this is really weird, we're getting you out of here because I know reality, and this is far from it. Yeah. So it has to be some kind of trickery, illusion, setup. And it's like, yes. no, he's, your grandfather's odd. You know, you don't go into that. You're a good person and trying to save her. But the but Barbara and Ian instantly take the role of, uh, Susan, you're a child. You'll do what we say. You're, you don't have an opinion. You're not helping us in escaping this. We're going to, we're going to help that, you. It's different because I say it's more like you don't know better. Yes, that's which exactly is, what it is. Yeah. Okay. Which is slightly different than what you're saying. Not totally dismissive, but it's like, because Barbara, well, I, I that like Barbara. Dismissive. It's just like, I like Barbara. Barbara, so I don't want to um, dislike anything she does. <laughs> you know, kind of, I can see it where it's like what she's doing is wrong. But with Ian, he's like, but it's a box. How could it be bigger on the inside? <laughs> and he just will not let that go and keeps going on with that same line. I guess, well, don't you have a TV? Can't you see a whole apartment or building in your room? <laughs> it's like, I like that analogy. Inside. Barbara was like, I feel that she was more protective more than anything else at that point. But she knew something was weird. She was very, you know, she's the one who have felt, you know, got a bad feeling about this, you know, from a different program. But <laughs> coming from the car to the uh, junkyard, she was, don't you feel it? It's like, I, I'm going to just say things as they come. And she's mm -hmm. more like, there's something really wrong. And I think that's just what's in her mind, what you brought to it. But she had to get Susan out of that. Not as some of the other ones at the time being so dismissive. But Barbara does do that more often. I remember now some other episodes. So you're right. It's just I don't have the, I didn't have the uh, same upbringing you did because I went to public school. <laughs> so it was a little bit different. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking of the nuns. <laughs> yeah. They didn't get beat. No, no, not No, 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 no. <laughs> no, they played with your mind. That was worse. Oh God. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, the way the way that the way that <laughs> Barbara talks to Susan is they are debating. Down. Yeah. There is no back and forth. It's literally, I'm saying this, and since you're a child, I'm right. So that's how I see it. And because that's mm -hmm. how it was back then. For I was going to say, it wasn't that was more the mentality. Yeah, children, children should, should be seen, be seen and, not, and not heard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <gasps> Kids didn't have opinions. You weren't allowed to have an opinion. Kids are idiots, so. 
no, the no. class as as classic who does has a lot of misogyny in it but the way it's written it's always written like misogyny is wrong it's always like it's basically pointing out that the doctor's being sexist or, or the or the lieutenant or whoever it may be it, they they create these very strong women characters who keep experiencing misogyny thrown at them same same thing in this episode with a little bit of misogyny but it's more about what you're saying about ageism towards you know kids if you want to call it that but it's always pointing out that that's wrong this child is capable except susan's a little off the wing uh you know this this woman <laughs> is capable this man is wrong everyone is wrong in their uh um in in the demonstrative you know attitude um but uh, even from the get-go it's interesting see and i don't of its time but you see i don't see it i don't think the writers wrote barbara and susan to say this is wrong i don't even think they were saying it was wrong when they had the doctor talk about the red indian and he was too savage to understand what a train was that I don't even think was a commentary on racism. I just think that was just the way people talked in 1963. They weren't right. thinking they were being racist. So we right, look at it now a... with a whole different set of eyes, right. which, you know, even, you know, in the 80s, we would have looked at it as a different set of eyes. If that scene were written today, or if that scene were written in the 80s or the 90s, it, it wouldn't be written that way. Today it would be written in today's method of communicating, where it's like, I know this feels really real to you. I know that you've got an emotion <laughs> and it's valid and you're special. Whereas in 1963, it was like, I'm the adult, this is wrong, there's no discussion. And you just kind of look at it now and go, whoa. Yeah. So there is an underlying tone that whoever is being condescending in any way is 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 incorrect in their assumption. Even Susan. Susan thinks she knows it all and sometimes she doesn't because of what's going on with her. And she, and she ends up being wrong in some ways. Everybody, and then the doctor is being obstinate and rude towards them. And he's wrong about that. So it, it's it's kind of, it, it, I guess it's kind of seesawing a little bit in, in that regard. Anyway, that's how I put it. And I forgot one thing, Brian, that mm. kind of goes along with what you said about Ian saying, you're treating us like children, which is what they're doing to Susan. And the doctor saying, well, that'd be quite an insult to the children of my race. Right. Yeah, you know? he does say that. I didn't even think of that. Uh, Carolyn Ford was on the DVD commentary and her reflecting on what she did at this point, she was like, yeah, that's what female parts were. They were there to ask questions and be told answers. Right. So... And who did she play? Who did she play, Barbara or Susan? Susan. Okay. But then, the, but right. then there is all those things where everybody, the other, what Josh was talking about earlier was when she says the odd things at school. She, she's right in everything she says. Yeah. To to the actress's point, it's kind of, and what you were just saying, it's kind of basically when a lot of women's roles are a device. Whereas the the you know they wrote the men to kind of drive the story and the and the point of view and the um the, the perspective. So Isn't if she needed like to be a damsel, who companion yeah, and, yeah, like and if she needed to be a damsel in distress, we we need someone to be saved. We need someone to do this. We like they just move move the women characters around. Because I did feel like but we won't talk about, but going into the following episodes of this story arc, Barbara is like three different people. Like like <laughs> Barbara at one point is not the Barbara in the beginning. In the beginning, Barbara is leading the plot, and then all of a sudden, it's just handed over to everyone else. Um, so. I don't think Barbara really had a character. She was just whatever they needed. At mm -hmm. the That's what I mean. Yeah. That's what I mean. Two things yeah. I wanted to point out that I liked was at the beginning when the constable was walking around, he secured and checked the gate was locked. You know, it's all foggy. It looked very much to me a Sherlock Holmes type thing. Very moody. And then, 
and then the gate just opens for us to go in and so we can see right. what's happening there i love that yeah. shot I yeah love we know it's secure but we're able to go in behind the locked doors and it's all one take and to do that yeah. back then took a lot of rehearsal i was like wow good on you yeah, and speaking of uh, the camera in the movie, you guys were speaking earlier about how big the cameras were. There's a number of shots where it's when they're in the TARDIS, especially where they're they're framing the actors and they're talking, and then someone else comes in, and then the camera moves over and turns it into like a whole other type of shot. And someone walks walks into the foreground, and then it's like a whole other type of shot, and there's no cut. Um, obviously, they did that because they were shooting like play and stuff, but it was really advanced camera work yeah. for blocking. You know, usually what that there are many shows even nowadays, of course, that that do that, but they make more use of editing, even if it's live editing, like a soap opera. Mm -hmm. But for how clunky the cameras were, I was really impressed at at the I guess you call that screen blocking, you know, in one take or, or whatever you want to call it. Like, uh, yeah, it oh, was very usually. well planned out. And saying even though saying we were saying earlier about you know the flubbing lines and stuff i felt this episode was much more well polished than a lot of the later ones i agree mm -hmm. they were like okay we gotta go hard for this one because the pilot's what sells the show right yeah i think this is a really well polished uh piece of television the director is uh waris hussein and he's an indian born like from india and he was only 25 when he got this Holy cow. And so he... Well, in, in 1963 years, that's 45. Yeah. <laughs> so he, on the commentary, he said that he was very ambitious because he was so young. That that's why he did all that stuff with the camera directions, because he was like, I want to make wow. this my own. I want to do this the best I can. And it I worked. think that's great. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. I felt this is the first time that I felt like anything that was sort of lame or cheesy was only because it was 1963 and all shows were like that. Yes. Hmm. This was funny, but this happened even later with with the square, you know, the four three aspect ratio. Everyone is really close to each other and it yes. made me really uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird to watch that now going step away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not only was it a square aspect ratio, but the cameras were closer so like you couldn't you had to be that close um which made yeah. it even like because like are they implying there's a romantic thing between ian and barbara or or not is he gonna kiss her or is he just saying shut up stupid woman i don't i can't tell <laughs> that was for <laughs> back now <laughs> those are your extremes huh <laughs> yes I have to agree with the the camera movement, especially after we watched uh, Attack of the Cybermen, which was eighties. Uh, eighties. Eighties. Like there were, like I mentioned in the the episode, there was times when you couldn't see the action happening because the characters were in front of the camera in an awkward way. But yeah, this this episode, I mean, that camera is moving the yeah. entire time. You don't even hear it. Yeah, that that that's kind of what got me. And it was a lot of times when you see early television camera dollies, you, you like you feel the bumps in the floor. <laughs> but it was pretty darn good. The the director also really used that the depth really effectively. Like like we've said, like characters would split up and then come back together in different uh, mm -hmm. layers mm -hmm. of people. So like yeah. especially on that stage where you want to see like triangles of people so that you see all the faces like no matter where they are on stage down or upstage and yeah i mean he did a really good job of bringing people back together in a frame in different depths but you could always see faces well most of the time you could see faces and and read the emotions from the characters yeah for sure 
it's like uh, we said earlier, if you can keep a take going, you don't have to stop to reset, to lose your loose ends of film, to to yeah. light leaks and rehearsals. Like once you're going, yeah, you want that film as much as much good take on that film as you can as you can fit before you have to cut. Tape is cheap. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't I don't know if you want to keep this or not, Eugene. And I'm, maybe this is a conversation for our time, but um, something's in my kitchen. No, um, but. Um, <laughs> um, I'm all, I've always been a little confused as to, you know, they couldn't rerun shows back then, but they were filming on videotape, and now we have copies of it. S- you know, film, a lot of television shows were f- shot live and broadcast live, but we have tape, yes. and now we have reruns of it. Like, I don't understand. So with, with BBC and Doctor Who specifically, they, they archived things on 16-millimeter teletape. That's what they used to ship it out to the other... Um, broadcasters that were airing it so that's why when an episode is lost they kind of find it because another broadcaster in a different country has a copy that was distributed by the bbc like when we watch i love lucy that was that was on that was shot shot that was on film are you sure the whole i thought the whole point because they invented the three camera setup and it was oh yeah you're right so it wasn't film but it was it i don't know if it's it wasn't live like it didn't broadcast live. It was still okay. taken Good. away and edited. It's live in front of a studio audience. Live in front of a studio right. audience, yes. Which is right. different than the Honeymooners or uh, George Burton, Gracie Alley, Grace Allen. Great, yeah. <laughs> uh, because those were, like you said, filmed watching these screens. So it was done live locally, but then they filmed it on a screen and that's when they were able to send it out to other areas. So when you look, okay. watch some of those, they're all weird, weirdly grainy or, or almost like a right. light double vision or a blurry because it was filmed right. from a screen to send out. Oh, that so, I learned when Betty White passed. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why I say, good. like, I Love Lucy, you watch it today, it doesn't, like, because videotape from the 80s is deteriorating when you pop in a videotape. Why doesn't videotape from the from the 50s Because that had to been on a film. Right. Yeah, because that being, yeah, all this being said, this episode played better, on, looked better on my television than the Colin Baker episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because this, uh, uh, so I looked it up, a tele-recording is what they used, where they take a film recording of something originally shot on another medium, usually videotapes in this case. So that's that's why it looks good, because it's preserved on film, even though it didn't originate on film. Right. And then when videotapes became more prevalent, they just did it all on video and left it there. Yeah. Huh. I didn't know any of this. I'm getting schooled right now. We digress. We technologically digress. Oh, I think this is all good because, like Heather, you're learning stuff. That's that's actually <laughs> not a bad segue. What did you guys think of the time vortex as an effect? <laughs> Reminded me of Star Trek Four. Yeah, I was yeah, saying yeah. like a split screen, but it was before split screen. Was it? Do you know, Eugene? Was it like ink and liquid oh. or how? So what they did is they took the video camera and they created a feedback loop by shooting at itself and then project like. The monitor of what it shot mm-hmm. so then it creates that that weird uh i guess time vortex i don't know what else to call it <laughs> like but yeah that's what they did and it was new it was experimental and they're like yeah that looks otherworldly let's use that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it's also funny how they use the vortex within the story because that's how you know that the tardis is traveling mm-hmm. because they kind of show the- a police box spinning at this point because it's too right. too expensive 
Um, I was just going to say, it's kind of one of those things that happens a lot in pilots where you throw everything in to draw people in. And then later you go, oh my God, we're not going to deal with that every single yeah. episode. Like I remember uh, the new Battlestar Galactica when the ship jumps through light speed. They did this whole thing where like they did the weird camera yeah. streaming <laughs> oh, thing. Right, and, and, you know, right. you had Callie going, I hate this part. So they like literally feel it. And they go through this whole big thing. And then by the time you see the next episode, it's just a flash of light, you know? Yeah. Because they're like, oh, we'd have to spend that every single time we jump. Yeah. <laughs> That's why, like, if you ever watch The Expanse, they really play up, like, how difficult living in space is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so why were Susan and Ian passed out? when they time traveled oh that's that's something that doesn't carry on because that's they're just they're disoriented when they first get in and then when it tra time travels to the caveman era they faint that never happens again that's it's just like for the just, pilot. they just have a weak constitution compared to time lords and traveling yeah i mean we, we yeah we can uh, uh chalk it up to that they're used they have um what's it called they have um what's that time energy that surrounds Chronotron? them yeah they have cro cro no what's croutons it? artron there it is artron, artron energy yeah. they start to uh collect artron i like crouton energy, energy. <laughs> i have crouton energy gallifrey and salad everyone wants crouton energy gallifrey just like the, chame the chameleon circuit, it's supposed to, like, if it lands in the caveman era, it's supposed to be like uh, a rock. That's too right. expensive. So they're like, nope, we're not going to do that. <laughs> We've already built a box. It's kind of brilliant. You know, necessity breeds invention and creates interesting things. Because the regeneration wasn't an original condition. They didn't know about regeneration when they wrote it. Yeah. That it was a necessity developed. that came out. Yeah. Because in the moment when they needed it. Yeah. Because William Hartnell was aging and he couldn't perform as long he was like pushing 57, yeah, 57. stop it <laughs> geezer he said stop it <laughs> uh the other thing that's related to this is that the interior of the tardis was also i can't remember who it was but they like uh at bbc at the time they had particular jobs that were these people were just assigned shows they weren't like i want to work on doctor who i want to work on downton abbey it was this guy your job now is to work with uh uh sydney newman and verdi lambert on this new doctor who show and that's why the the uh the circles in the console room are are that way because you'll see in when we do the adventure in space and time the guy did not really want to work on doctor who so he came up with that sort of last minute but it's so iconic now mm -hmm. yeah one piece of continuity that i noticed that i had forgotten about when we did the other first doctors episodes where they were trapped in the TARDIS and were fighting against each other. Edge of Destruction. That's the one. Was the clock. Yeah. When you first enter in here, then you see the clock. Pristine, you know what it is. They even talk about it. It's not really in the foreground of a shot, but it's just there. And then by the time we saw that one, it was just all melty and blurry. We didn't know what it was because I had forgotten they had already established there's a clock there. So there's I like that when I saw it. It's too, a real clock. It? I'm sorry. Isn't there a candelabra too? Or some, yeah, there's some more decorative stuff that right. is juxtaposed with the uh, spaciness of the round things. And the right. chair. Yeah. Oh, and uh, this is the pilot episode, the first episode where Ian says, "Can you feel it? It's alive." Yeah. And then, yes. oh, yeah, man. I didn't. But they didn't know what it was back then. But I like right. in canon that we can retrofit it to be like the TARDIS is a character. Yeah. 
I, I'm thinking exactly what you're thinking. Like they must not have meant that because they didn't no. bring that up again. Then no. why would they have him say that? Like they were saying, uh, I found that you know this might be something they could mine uh, episodes down the line. When did he say it? When they first were Remind found me. the TARDIS, he put his hand on it. He's like, "Do you feel that?" And she says, "It's vibrating." And he says, "It's alive," um, as opposed to electricity. It, it, it's got a alive. motor. Yeah, yeah, but it was just odd that he said "alive" as opposed to "it's live," like. It, mm-hmm. It's humming or something like. Maybe it felt that like was there was supposed British to be slang. something. Yeah, that's what I mean. There's another. There's another thing that it's along the same lines, but I find it unintentional. But I like it. Um, when the doctor is saying to Susan, "Of course they're going to tell." You know, that's that's just what they're going to do. If we let them go, they're going to tell somebody. May not be everybody, but they'll tell somebody, and we can't have that. And Susan says to him, um, "Human minds reject things they don't understand," meaning that they won't tell anybody. They're going to forget about it. Well, that's something that in the current show they deal with. It's like, why doesn't everybody remember Dalek? because humans just forget things they don't if they don't like it they just move on and they forget um yes they fall out of the universe when you reboot them but there were plenty of daleks before the modern era i mean hell there was the there was the loch ness monster in the thames in the fourth doctor but it doesn't get referred to again which allows the show to write new episodes without getting bogged down in continuity and i like that you can look at this i mean i don't think they were planning this of course but i look at that line as okay that's the establishment of that um, I wanted to keep watching this series because I was like, well, how do we get from this point to the doctor traveling with these people? Because right now he seems very against it. Like he doesn't want them in the TARDIS. He doesn't want them knowing about him and Susan. So like what happens that he's then traveling with them and going on adventures? Does it, Eugene, does it get, or Heather, you watched them all, Josh, you watched them all. Does it get resolved by the end of this serial? I didn't get to the end, actually. No. No? Okay. Well, because, (laughs) well, I'll tell you the serial after this is Daleks. So we get our arch enemy in the second story of the first season. I think that's amazing. Also, I Um, think that's why the show survived. Yeah. I don't. People just latched onto the Daleks like crazy. Yeah. They were talking about it a little bit on the commentary where the caveman wasn't so popular, that story, uh, but then the Daleks really saved the ratings for them. And I I don't remember, because I haven't watched the Daleks serial in a long time, but maybe that's where they formed that TARDIS team bond because there's more, um, there's more at stake in this one, in this story. All four of them have to team together to survive. Yeah, so I think that's where we can get the, that the Doctor does want Barbara and Ian with them. There's also some survival bonding in the in these caveman episodes. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I'm sure the Daleks solidify it, but you can yeah. see it starting to happen. Okay. I will say, as far as more, more so in the in the next pieces of the story arc, was I like, um, how are we gonna get out of this? Like, I just kept thinking that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this in, in this pilot episode, I sort of was like that too. Like, how, is he gonna let him go? I kept wanting to know what's going to happen so as stilted as some of the dialogue was and as very dated as different things were i was compelled to know how are they going to get out of this or how is he going to accomplish this how, when is she going to shut up no or what, <laughs> what is she going to do uh so i did want to keep watching it so it yeah. is good writing mm-hmm. i think they perfected that serialized storytelling with cliffhangers and mm-hmm. uh they want to bring you back next week type of thing yeah, well, when that shadow came up at the very end, I didn't know anything about the story arc. So oh. That came up. I, I, that's why I kept watching because I was like, well, "What the heck was that?" 
I I don't know if you noticed, but that that is not a freeze frame. That is a guy standing there, very still, and you can see his hand slightly moving the shadow while the credits were going over. So oh, while the credits oh, were rolling. Yeah, that's all live. That's crazy. That's so cruel. <laughs> so the doctor, like we mentioned before, the doctor does visit the uh, 76 Totters Lane I Am Foreman junkyard more than once. Yeah, we did the one with uh, the hand of Omega or hand of Omega in remembrance of the Daleks with the seventh doctor. That's where he buried um, the hand, if you remember that. Oh, I remember him doing that, but I don't yeah. remember. Uh... Well, actually, it was near there. I mean, because he, he buried it in a cemetery and then they were levitating that thing out of there. Oh. And then later with the Cybermen, we mentioned that too, Attack of the Cybermen. And then it'll happen again in a upcoming episode. Uh, and also in in uh, the sixth Doctor one that we just saw. Yes, this Attack of the Cybermen. Yeah. Yeah. In Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, the one that we just did or recently did, that's where we get that uh, bleeding of time from the console when it's being torn apart by the salvage crew. You hear all those voices, and then this is the one with Susan saying, "I made up the name TARDIS from the initials." Mm. Other things that are on the DVD that I found were worth mentioning is that Verity said that this is aimed for eight to 14 year old boys specifically. And she mentions that she got letters after the show started uh, to have more episodes from all types of people, not just from this boy demographic, but from boys and girls. And then she mentioned older viewers and specifically people that were in the science field, like physicists saying, hey, that episode you did about that time travel space thing, it's like, I'm kind of working on something like that. So I thought that that was cool that she was getting fan mail from people outside of her target demographic that were really invested in the show. Dude. Yeah. I thought you were going to say they wrote and we're like, it's all wrong. You're really. <laughs> How dare you? You really have to stop spreading this misinformation. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad it was the opposite of that. <laughs> um, and then the cast, as we mentioned in other episodes, but I'll just go through real quick. William Hartnell plays the doctor. Carol Ann Ford plays Susan Foreman, the granddaughter. Jacqueline Hill plays Barbara Wright. And William Russell plays Ian Chesterton. All right, that wraps up An Unearthly Child. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and we will see you next time when the future becomes the present. You've just listened to an episode of Who Knew? Our wonderful theme music is by Michael Grady. Find him on Facebook at The Universe Explodes. Additional music is by Damiel Paggio. All our episodes are engineered by Auburn. You can find him at albertbinkley.com. You can also find this show in several places. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Who Knew Podcast. Subscribe, review, and listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Who Knew Podcast. All our episodes are on whonewpodcast.com. Visit our Facebook page. Please leave comments, reviews, and click like to help support Who Knew Podcast. To listen to our show on your Amazon Echo device, subscribe to us on Amazon Music and then ask your Amazon device to play your podcast subscriptions. This podcast is inspired by Doctor Who. The longest running sci-fi show in history. And especially the revival, spearheaded by Russell T. Davis. Thanks to Russell, Sidney Newman, Verity Lambert, Ron Grainer, Delia Derbyshire, and all those involved in the adventures of our favorite Time Lord. Your work continues to inspire and entertain.